Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. Um, This is the first night that we've been able to have the window open. And I also thought I could hear spring tonight. So part of the practice of sitting meditation is um, really to be in all seasons, all kinds of weather patterns, and um, to really feel as the breath comes and goes that on that line of attention, um, All kinds of sensations occur, all kinds of moods occur, all kinds of fantasies occur. But naturally, over time, uh, even if your technique is not so good, they'll still all start to settle, just by being still, especially um, in the room with others, where other people's stillness kind of infuses your own alignment. And you sit, and eventually, and this happens uh, much more easily on retreat, um, you hit these air pockets where they're just silence. And I think, unfortunately, from so much bad writing about meditation practice, we think the air pockets are nothing. They're filled with nothing you get to some kind of emptiness. Um, And it's true. uh, The air pockets or the silences that we can encounter often don't have any ideas in them or thoughts or stories. But what they do do is they open us up to a feeling um, of interconnectedness. And they bring you into, they open you into the vein of kindness that we all have. Some vein that runs through every single one of us. And maybe every sentient being, every creature, has this vein of kindness. And the vein leads to the valve and the aorta and all the arteries. Um... 
And eventually, the Sushumna Nadi, which is, Sushumna means great, and Nadi means a river. And in yoga, this is what the central axis of the body-mind, from the pelvic floor through to the crown of the head. It's called the Sushumna Nadi, which is this great river of kindness. And if you visualize this river of kindness in the center of your own body, you can maybe imagine that it's filled with milk. Vegan milk. Kind milk is vegan. something. You ever tried sprouting milk? That's a whole other workshop. So, um, this is the milk of human kindness that maybe we all forget uh, is flowing all the time. We all share the same blood and we all share the same salt water that becomes what you sweat and what you cry. And we all are made of water and air and breath. And uh, this is what we share. And in the meditation practice, this is a way not just to remember that philosophically, uh, but to feel that again. How do we lose that? Um, Over the last uh, six weeks, we've been studying the Lotus Sutra. So week by week, we've been going through I want to say a chapter, but we haven't. We've been slower than that. We've been trying to do a chapter a week. Um, We're almost at that, but not quite. Um, So tonight, I think, is chapter five, week six. And um, last week, we studied the parable of the burning house, which is the story of a father who is a wealthy father, like every man in the, uh, every aspiring man in the Lotus Sutra, who has 10, 20, 30, 40 or more kids in this house, and there is a fire. And even though he realizes he has the strength to get most of them out with his own um, courage and will, um, there is only one gate as an exit from this house. And he realizes if he ties the kids to a bench and carries them out, he can't get them out of the gate. And so he entices them to leave by promising the ones who love goat carts a goat cart, and the ones who love deer carts a deer cart, and so on. But when they finally get out of the gate, there is only one cart, which represents, in this story, uh, the Buddha explains, that people who are living in a burning house. All of us who are burning with uh, desire and with craving and with clinging and contraction and with anger. Um, Even though there are many kinds of carts or many vehicles or many paths out of that process, um, they all lead eventually to one vehicle, which is the vehicle that wakes us up. And yet, there has to be different paths that lead this way. 
Because some people like goat carts. And some people like deer carts. And some people like ox carts. But also, the other level of this parable is that you can only leave your burning house um, by your own steam. And then the Buddha explains how, and this is the job of the Buddha, that the Buddha teaches his teachings not because they are the truth, because no teaching is absolutely true. He teaches the teachings just as upaya, as skillful means for helping people leave the burning house. And I think all of us know what it's like to spend time with people where we don't know how to reach them, even though we see them burning in a house. And what's interesting about the story is the father is sensitive to what those kids, what will reach those kids. And most of us, when we have friends or family who are suffering in a burning house, or even ourselves, um, one of the hardest things to do is to figure out what is that spark that gets them motivated to leave the house. And what we ended on last week is when you leave the house, you also may realize that there are things still inside. And the goal or the job or the path of the bodhisattva is someone who doesn't just leave the house, but then turns around and goes back in again and helps other beings uh, wake up in whatever way that's possible. And there is no one way. There are myriad ways. <clears throat> and we all need teachings um, that suit our style of distractedness. Everybody has a different... Uh, idiom of uh, agitation and irritation and frustration and, and, and defensiveness. Too. And I feel like 90% of my job is just trying to find ways for people to get still and to be in their lives. And um, or to get people to, to, to to come regularly and learn what a practice is. Not just how to sit on your cushion, that's really important, but also to get the flavor to be kind of perfumed by the practice. We put like magic spells in the incense, you know, that kind of wafts through you and works on you neurologically to open up that vein of kindness. That is, I would say, the goal of this practice. Um, and when we get out of the burning house, we realize that the vehicles weren't really that important. That actually all these teachings and all these practices are empty. And they're not even true. They're just true for you in the time you need them to be true. And this, for some of the students of the Buddha, was really frustrating. Because they thought, well, you've been teaching nirvana. You've been teaching that the goal is this anuttara samyak sambodhi, this perfect enlightenment. And we always thought that that was the goal. And now we realize 
That was just one cart. And that there's this whole other level. Yeah. (laughs) And lastly, that the Buddha is not, after all, a savior. This is not like some Messiah who is going to come and deliver you. That the Buddha is just somebody who offers skillful means. And even though he seems in the Lotus Sutra like a powerful being, he doesn't have enough power to save you from your own burning house. You have to do it. And this is called karma. So, now we get to uh, chapter 5. I thought tonight I would actually just read from the Lotus Sutra for the first time. Uh, I'll try and get through a couple sentences. So, the Buddha is sitting, and Shibuti is there, Mahakatyayana is there, Mahakashyapa is there, and Mahamodaglayayana is there. Mahakash, you know, all these are important disciples of the Buddha. Okay, that's as far as I can read. Um, and, you know, if you know the history of, of uh, the Buddha's teachings, you'll, you'll know that these names. And one of the names that I think is really important is Mahakashyapa. So he, is, uh, he was important because he was the person who called the first council after the Buddha's death and organized the students to meet, to talk and document what the Buddha had taught. And that's how we get these early teachings. So one day, this is not the Lotus Sutra, this is still Mahakashyapa, and why he's such a famous story in Mahayana Buddhism, such a famous figure, rather, is one day the Buddha is asked to give a teaching where some disciples gather around, the Sangha gathers around, and they ask the Buddha to give a teaching, and he says he will give a teaching on um, the nature of awakening. And so he pulls out a flower. I'm sorry I don't have a flower. This is what we have in Ontario. So he pulls out a flower, and he smiles. And he looks around, And nobody understands. Except Mahakashyapa is on the other side of the room and he looks at the flower and he smiles. And then the Buddha realizes he understands. So then the Buddha says that Mahakashyapa has realized the Dharma reality, the Buddha's teaching, outside of scriptures. And this is what's now in Zen practice called mind-to-mind transmission, outside the scriptures. And Zen, it said, is a teaching outside the scriptures. You hold up a flower, and if it's not understood, you have to go back to the scriptures until your heart is warmed up enough that you can stop and see a pussy willow like this and appreciate not just the pussy willow but see how you and this pussy willow 
inter-exist. So, Mahakashyapa smiles. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful uh, teaching. And I'm not a fully enlightened Buddha, and you're just lonely old people in burning houses. So probably uh, nothing happened. But anyways... Hmm. That's the first sentence of the text. Um, These students were so moved by the story of the burning house that they come to the Buddha and they say, we would like to offer you a parable now. We would like to offer you a parable. Once upon a time, there was a son of a wealthy... Now, there's two translations here, so I'm going to try and give you both of them because they're really different. If you read the Burton Watson translation or the Gene Reeves translation, the story is quite different. So there is, a, there is a son of a very wealthy man. Do you like this theme? Your very wealthy man has lots of sons. Every chapter. So <laughs> one day you can be a wealthy man, too, with lots of sons. But Tabby Joyce used to say this about your yoga practice. She used to say, woman practicing yoga long time, getting man body. <laughs> In other words, if you have a really good practice, you get to be reborn as a man. It's so good. Like menopause, all that bleeding, you know. And like one day, uh, you can be reborn and you can be free like us. <laughs> so... And you could have 20 or 30 sons. Without childbirth. What's that? Without childbirth. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other chapter. In the... It's coming, though. That's coming. Yeah. Okay. Have we gotten to two sentences yet? World-honored one, at the time, an impoverished son drifted from one kind of employment to another. Uh, for 20, for 10, for 20 for 30 years, maybe even 50 years. He went through all different kinds of employment, wandered around as a very poor person, going from job to job. And one day he arrives in a city and 50 years had passed. He forgot his own name. He forgot his clan. He couldn't even remember what his parents looked like. And he climbed up over the gate of an enormous um, kingdom. And he looked across into the kingdom, and he saw a king there sitting on a lion's throne with all kinds of manservants, two of them on either side with feathers cooling him down. And he thought, I should get out of here. I don't belong here. This is not my scene, man. (laughs) And then, immediately not recognizing the father, because he had been gone for 50 years, the father instantly recognized him. And the father sent some guards after him. They grabbed him. They pulled him into the gate. And then the father, seeing that he would not be able to reach his son by having guards pin him down, uh, had the guards dump cold water on him and let him go. Meanwhile... 
he's wondering, why have I been arrested? I didn't do anything. What could I have done? The father let him go. But the father also realized that this was the son who would best, or the only son left, who could look after all of his riches and entrust his kingdom to. So the father realizes he needs to use upaya, skillful means. So the father finds the two uh, most meager, lean, uh, destitute workers in his kingdom. And he gets them to go into the city and to find his son and to lure his son to come back to the kingdom. So they bring his son back to the kingdom. Um, You know, they're dressed all kind of shabby and so on. And they say to the son, "Uh, we can give you a job and you can have a job of taking the excrement of all the animals, shoveling it into piles, presumably for compost. And the son thinks, well, this is the kind of job that I'm used to. And the son has extremely low self-esteem and doesn't even think about the ambition of ever uh, rising above a kind of employment that goes from you know, job to job to job. So he takes the job and he works there for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And as he's working there, can you imagine this? You know, basically shoveling shit for 20 years all different kinds of animals in a kingdom. And um, then the father uh, starts giving him more and more responsibility. And one day, the father, who was the king, um, puts on meager clothing and goes out to, to work with the son. So it goes right down to his level. And he's working with the son. And then he encourages the son to take on even more responsibility. Can you picture this? After some time had passed, the father perceived that his son was bit by bit becoming more self-assured in his outlook, that he was determined to accomplish great things and despised his former low opinion of himself. Realizing that his own end was approaching, He ordered his son to arrange a meeting with his relatives and the king of the country, the high ministers, the noblemen and householders. When they were all gathered together, he proceeded to make his announcements. Gentlemen, you should know that this is my son. He was born to me in such and such a city, had such and such a name. At the time, I had such and such a name. This is my son, and I entrust my kingdom to this son. The son was filled with joy. He couldn't hold back his joy. And he thought to himself, I originally had no mind or heart to seek such things, yet now these stores of treasures have come of their own accord. So this was the parable that they told the Buddha. Then they say to the Buddha, Buddha, this old man with his great riches is none other than you, and we are like your sons. We were diligent. We exerted ourselves to reach nirvana. We attain nirvana, but that's only like one day's wages. Once we attained it, our hearts were filled with great joy, 
And we thought that was enough. Are you following? That's one version of the story. In another translation, the son doesn't seem to want to be part of the kingdom. And that's why he left. So in one, ver- so one translation you know, is really about low self-esteem and the father finding skillful means to meet the son's low self-esteem. And in another version of the translation, um, the son doesn't want to be part of the kingdom. It's not his thing, really. And he wanders around and works with excrement because uh, that's where he's most comfortable. And yet, the father has to come down to his level to really understand him. And they have to work together, shoveling the shit. Different emphasis, I think, which is, which is kind of interesting. How does it end in the second one? Exactly the same. Yeah. Son's overjoyed. Um, I thought I'd read a little poem. Mary Oliver. It's hard to read Mary Oliver these days. Everyone just knows her poems by heart. But here's a poem called Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. The poem could just end there. It's like, what? It's such a good first line. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, No matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. This past weekend, I was in Armprior, Ontario, which is just outside of Ottawa. There's an old convent there, and um, I was teaching a silent Vipassana retreat. So, you know, we spend the days uh, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, and then um, we do some yoga practice, and we have lunch. Some of you have done this before, it's very exciting. Sit and walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, dinner, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sleep. For a couple days. It was a short retreat. And uh, this man signed up for the retreat uh, uh, from Quebec. um, Because usually the retreats are bilingual. I can't teach bilingually. I can only teach in English. But he just saw that the retreat was short. 
<laughs> so he just wanted to come because the retreat was short. And he also didn't see that the retreat was called Yoga and Vipassana. So uh, he is in his 50s, and he's never encountered yoga before. And he's one of these people that James Joyce describes as his head is not connected to his shoulders. You know? What is James Joyce? It's like two feet above his shoulder. And... Um, so, you know, we sat and walked. He was really, really still. And then we came to yoga class, and he participated for about two minutes. And then he just kind of sat there and, and looked out at everybody. And you could see this kind of sadness come over his face. And he was breathing, and he just kept sitting there. Class was two hours. He sat there for the whole two hours, watching and breathing. And then we took a break. And then um, later I learned that, or wait, there's more to the story. Then, uh, if any of you have ever been on a silent retreat, the way you communicate with the teacher is you just write notes, because um, it's silent. So you write little notes. So he wrote me a note saying, um, I didn't really understand so well because it was in English and I didn't know that there was going to be yoga and I didn't know what I was doing and my body can't do any of those things. Uh, so would it be okay tomorrow if during the yoga I could sit out? So I said, so I just wrote back, of course. So I pinned it up for him to take. So at the end of the retreat I learned that that day he felt so much shame. Everybody's in there practicing yoga, people of all ages, all body types. And he sat there because he just, he, could, he wasn't in his body at all. And it was really threatening to him. And then he felt so much shame. And then suddenly, even though he's 25 years older than me, I was his father. And he wrote me this note thinking he was going to be in a lot of trouble. So this is what's going on for him, right? So we're in stillness. We're sitting and all he's feeling the whole afternoon is just this terrible shame about his body. And I've become his father. So I could, of course, not know any of this. But I wrote back. Because, you know, a lot of times on retreat, people perceive that the teacher is like this fascist authoritarian person who's basically going to hit you at any time, you know. And I wrote back, of course. And his heart melted when he got the, he kept reading this paper over and over again. Of course, of course, like, it's okay. And unknowingly, um, this was skillful means. My intention was just for him to be comfortable. And this was such a healing retreat. Such a healing retreat for this man. So, to tie this all together, we have in us this vein of kindness, or what the Lotus Sutra is getting at, this Buddha nature. And it's covered over for so many people with low self-esteem. Right? Isn't, isn't low self-esteem like the most insidious 
kind of mind state that so many people work with. And in our meditation practice, the thing that gets us stuck more than anything else is not anxiety, fear, anger, sadness. It's judgment. It's comparison. And it's what gets more people stuck in meditation than anything else. They're sitting there, and the judgment starts showing up, judging themselves, comparing themselves to other people. And then the thing about judgment is if that's the main way you see yourself, then when you see the self-judgment, then you judge it, right? So instead of bringing mindfulness to it, you're judging the judging. Or like comparing, I'm, ju- I'm so terrible, you know. And this is this kind of vortex of rumination that he, he was in. You know? And he caught it. He caught it. And it was partly because of the age. He really felt like I was this authoritarian father. But because he was so much older than me, he realized he couldn't do that. It was a, that's an amazing moment. And, and maybe if we weren't on a silent retreat, that wouldn't have happened, right? He just would have been gone and never seen him again. You know, kind of blaming on the, everything on the retreat. So then, the retreat ends, and I stay a little longer because it's so beautiful, and I start reading the beginning of this chapter that I just read. And then I get into the car, and I drive down towards the 401, and I stop at Tim Hortons to pee. And um, I walk into Tim Hortons, and my father is sitting there. <laughs> my father is sitting there, and I can't believe my father is. Is that Tim Hortons? You know? My dad, he's just not a Tim Hortons kind of, kind of guy. And he's sitting there talking with someone in his kind of like flamboyant way of, of speaking and I, I can't open the door I have my hand on the door and I'm looking through the glass and I can't believe my, my dad is there and then I start noticing things about him my dad is not a social person he doesn't really have too many friends he just likes spending time by himself and then I notice he's at a table talking really, you know, in this kind of way that he only does when he's with his family. And then my heart really warms up. I see this side of my dad through the door that I have never seen before. And I get this feeling of just this deep love for him. And I'm so happy that he has a friend. Who's this friend he's with that he's so excited to be with? So I, I decide, okay, well, should I just leave him? Or should I go in and, and say, nice to see you at Tim Hortons? <laughs> so I open the door, and, I, and I, I start walking a little bit towards the aisle where his table, and then I realize, it's not my dad. It's not my dad at all. In fact, he, doesn't, he kind of looked like my dad from a distance, but as I get closer, it's not my dad. But my momentum was so strong, I just wanted to go see this person. But I stopped myself. That's the parable. <laughs> you know, I think in some ways, you know, what covers up our kindness 
is that we've been wounded. We maybe haven't got the love that we need. These are like the simplest kind of basic patterns in so many people. And so we act it out. We act it out. And yet at the same time, we also have a responsibility too to swallow our projections and our blame so that we're not constantly expecting our elderly parents. Or, if we're not working it out with our parents, all the people, all the teachers, we turn into parents. Or politicians, we turn into parents. Instead of us kind of stepping back and recognizing the projection and the relationship between the projection and our own self-esteem. Does this make sense? The psychologist John Wellwood, uh, in his new book, he writes, The core psychological wound, so prevalent in the modern world, forms out of not feeling loved or intrinsically lovable as we are. Inadequate love or attunement is shocking or traumatic for a child's developing and highly sensitive nervous system. It damages our capacity to value ourselves, which is also the basis for valuing others. It damages our capacity to value ourselves, which influences then what we project onto others. So those of us who are really busy judging others um, really need to look at our own experience of incompleteness or comparison. But what do you do about it? You use the relationships you're in that are filled with judgment. You use those mind states that you're in where you're comparing. And exactly in those moments, you catch it. There's no other option. You can analyze it, but you can't catch it. You can't catch it unless there's awareness of the judgment rather than um, being stuck in the judgment. Is this clear? Does this make sense? Maybe no one will ever understand you. You can't even understand yourself. Really? Have you ever tried? Maybe you finally get an idea of yourself that you can understand and it lasts for a month or two months or a year. And then you're in a different configuration and it doesn't work anymore. So how do we expect others to fully understand us? Maybe understanding is not really the root. Maybe the path we need to take is just really being able to see. Just being able to see. Clear seeing in all its complexity and nuance. And also imperfection. And maybe this seeing is what we're developing in our meditation practice. To really see clearly. Even judgment. And the parable in this story is... Uh, is is kind of describing the Buddha 
as somebody who has skillful means. And the Buddha's teachings as skillful means. These practices we're doing as skillful means to wake up even to self-judgment and low self-esteem. Like this son did. And then we can uh, contact the milk again. So, I'll stop there. See if anybody has anything to say. I'm so busy critiquing myself, I don't know. Anything. <laughs> Comments, questions? I think it's interesting to, when you were relating with that man, that in some ways, it, because he was a little bit older than you, mm-hmm. that that compassion in you arose, I think, easily a little bit and sometimes as teachers and we're trying to serve if someone is younger than you or on the path less time than you Uh um, I feel like it would be a little bit harder for that compassion to arise and I wonder sometimes if it's because we have agenda you know like where you see oh but the, the practice would serve you know and and to let go of the agenda and like move from that place of kindness always. Yeah. And I'm just interested in uh-huh. how that all came together. Yeah. And because sometimes the upaya is going to be very different. Like the course worked really well for him, but it wouldn't necessarily be the message that you would write back to everyone who wrote that message to you. No, that's the point of upaya. Yeah. Is that, I mean, that's why in the last chapter it said that, you know, there are infinite teachings because there are infinite beings. And that's why you can't ever understand the path. Which is awesome, and at the same time, like, it's so awesome. And so for a so teacher, hard. because you've contacted these wounds in yourself, this is the archetype of the wounded healer that you see in world mythology all over the place. The healer who's been wounded has, you know, in him or herself. And so those wounds, as we were saying earlier, become tools. They become tools. So that then you can see those same wounds in others. And we're all like that. We spot the wounds in others. We have like a radar for it. You know, you know in psychotherapy training, this is kind of one, of, I remember was one of the hardest things for me studying in psychotherapy was trying to understand people's kind of personality types and woundedness that I had never experienced before. Like really trying to figure out how to do that. So the way we would do it is we would go to, I shouldn't tell you this. <laughs> we, we would go to subway stations and we would find personality types like really not like ours that we didn't completely understood the way someone walked or moved. And we'd follow them <laughs> as long as we could. Try to walk like them, hold a briefcase like them. And like really try and get into their, their experience. And, you know, the way that the father got the kids out of the burning house was he knew what they loved, right? Mm-hmm. And likewise, um, um, skillful means is that you're, you're sensitive to what the other person needs to ignite that, that flame. Don't you think it's interesting that you're, you didn't have that much of a relationship with him? 
you know, and to some degree yeah. to find that out, we need to be intimate with with our students. And no, like, not necessarily. No, I don't mean intimate, but like I mean like you get to know. <laughs> like there is a relationship building. Is the father knowing the children, right, to know what cart they needed? Uh huh. And yet, at the same time, if you're just present and sensitive, then that clarity just comes. It can. But both are true. Yeah, sometimes you really need to learn someone and, someone and try seven years of techniques. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're just there and you get it. You know? And in the case that I was describing with this man, it was totally different. I, I don't even know if I had anything to do with it. I just wrote him a note. Mm-hmm. I was feeling particularly kind because he, I could see he was having a hard time. But I didn't think it all the way through, you know. Like, there was just an intention there to make sure that the note sounded relaxed. Yeah. And for another student, the note wouldn't have been relaxed. It would be like, S- get on your yoga mat and try. <laughs> you know. And then to be kind with yourself if you wrote the wrong note, too, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I remember one time, you know, teaching a retreat with Norman Feldman. And uh, it was a silent retreat. I shouldn't tell these stories, but it's a silent retreat. And one of the things Norman really likes doing on retreats that no one should know about is he likes listening to the radio. So, like, before we go teach, we'll sit in a room together and he'll listen to the radio. And it was the time when they were going to prorogue Parliament. And he was really obsessed, you know, and we were listening and he was telling me all about it. He had a friend in Ottawa. and, And it was the same time, I think, where there was a bombing in Bombay. I think at the same yeah. time, yeah, in Mumbai, right? And um, then that came on the radio. And then suddenly I think, Norman, we, look what the time is. The bell's already gone. And so, you know, we get up and we, we run across in the snow to the meditation hall, and everybody's sitting there. And you could feel they were sitting, but they were waiting. <laughs> and I was sitting there, and I just felt, you know, just terrible that... You know, Norman had talked me into listening to the radio. And <laughs> what kind of teachers are we? You know. So then we go back to the we go back to the interview room, and I said, Norman, I feel so bad. He's like, well, We were just it's okay. We listened to the radio, and then we missed it. We got in there, and we had some time for meditating. And, and in Norman's psyche, there was like no, like he didn't feel bad. He just I felt terrible, and like, what's everyone going to think of us? what kind of meditation teachers are. And he just, like, the feeling was there, oh, mistake. It was just so light in him. And he didn't have, like, this, all this other... He just went in and sat. (laughs) Anyways. Any other comments, questions? Really? Self-judgment, fathers, wealthy fathers with 30 sons, Tim Hortons, shame. One kind of going between the seeing and the understanding and how quite easily one can be confused as the other. Um, Seeing and and thinking that you understand. Yeah. um, So going back and forth, I really appreciated um, the example of the old man. Yeah. the distinction that it could create because you saw and didn't see the end to what 
you could help this man achieve for himself. Yeah. Uh, but he achieved it. Uh -huh. If you had understood, uh -huh. your action would have been the same. Mm. But you didn't need to understand to see. So uh -huh. we can understand some things because we're wounded. So we yeah. understand. But it's that seeing. It's just uh -huh. that that's all we need to develop. So uh -huh. that we can see that <clears throat> if we don't understand it. Act accordingly just yes. because of the yeah. 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 We're back to this whole this whole um, issue of intention. You know. That the intention's there. You know. And 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 that's crucial for being able to really serve. With action. Yeah. And you may understand it and you may not. You may be able to really witness um, and you also may fail, you know. Um, but the two of us together had this experience. Uh, it wasn't one or the other, you know. And it could have all gone wrong, right? Imagine. Well, certainly, took bravery on his part to even try. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. Imagine someone feeling so much shame. Can you pick? Can you feel this scene a little? And actually. Staying in it and then articulating it. Spending a whole afternoon with this whole authoritarian thing and being able to articulate it. I feel like even in his attempt to uh, ease his own suffering by virtue of trying to remove himself from the situation, yeah. it was then, it was still another brave uh, initiation to choose to feel how he did about yeah. the of course. Yeah. And that maybe might be have been the real <clears throat> yeah. like the real the real effort, the yep. real extra stuff yeah. that he did. Yeah, and he didn't have to walk through the desert on his hands and knees mm -hmm. or sweat through a yoga class. But he didn't leave either. Like Mary Oliver says, letting the soft animal of your body love what it loves. How many of us can do that? That doesn't mean, you know, espresso in bed. <laughs> All the time. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, the story makes me think about how important relationship is, is to Upaya, mm -hmm. with the three things you were talking about last week of appropriateness, skillfulness, and effectiveness. Because mm -hmm. you could do the first two, and it could have been effective or... or or it could not have been effective. Yeah. And as a teacher, um, you need to have enough relationship, not long-term necessarily, yeah. but enough connection, i.e. that yeah. you didn't leave, yeah. to be able to either continue that yeah. that chain until yeah. it could be effective, yeah. or, or to, to let yeah. the effectiveness kind of uh -huh. blossom. Yeah, you have to uh, check in and make sure that... It's just like in any relationship. You can speak from your heart, and if you don't check in after, the other person, who knows what they heard? And then they speak to you, and it's good for you to also articulate back what you heard. And then you kind of, you're, you're attuning to each other. And maybe at also some kind of uh, underground level, that attuning is also kind of healing wounds of not having attunement. And it's a nice yeah. extra piece from just thinking about intention. Yeah. Because if you 
if you put it out just with a good intention, yeah. um, and if that were where it stopped, yeah. then that relationship didn't need to happen yeah. because it didn't really matter whether it was effective or not. Yeah. Um, so that attunement process gets short-circuited. Yeah. There's kindness in everyone. Is that a question? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, I didn't. I didn't answer. I should just hold up the flower. <laughs> yeah. um, like we just need to believe there's kindness in everyone, or there really is kindness. In <laughs> the Lotus Sutra is a departure from early Buddhism, where everybody has the potential for kindness and the potential for every other mind state. And you're not inherently kind. You're not inherently loving. You're not inherently anything. You are not essentially anything. You actually have the potential for uh, any action, any feeling, any state of mind. You are not inherently good in early Buddhism. And the Lotus Sutra is a departure from that, saying everybody is inherently on this path to awakening. We all have Buddha nature. And this milk that flows through all of us is kind if you only have faith. Even if you have to fake it. If you only have faith. Not faith that there is a savior, because the Buddha is saying over and over again, I, I can't do this for you, but just to have faith in that Buddha nature. And maybe for those of us who adhere to certain political views, we really need to do this with our enemies. Yeah. Maybe Stephen Harper's like really good at frisbee, and 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 his and loves, you know, horseshoes, you know, and and his son loves loves to to play frisbee with him and just thinks he's the greatest frisbee player ever, you know. I can't picture it, but you know. And you know, we need to do this also for our own heart, not to make people flat, and one-sided. Or um, we won't understand the nuance of the situation. And maybe that's the upaya on our side, too. I use politicians because we do this all the time. It's so easy just to flatten them, you know, or feel like you want to flatten them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one more comment, and then we'll... skillfulness then not sort of uh, dependent on outcome because the same action uh-huh. okay no keep keep going yeah. <laughs> um, I'm saying huh just as I listen it's just a habit huh? oh I thought it was so <laughs> um, the same action if it didn't turn out that that was the uh, attuned response for this particular person and let's say um, he actually needed you to be authoritative to encourage him to participate, and he and he needed a different kind of response. Yeah. Would your response have been any less skillful if it was from an intention of upaya? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So, so one of the factors in measuring if something is skillful is not just intention, 
which is we've talked about is kind of more the early Buddhist model, but it's also that it's effective. And you have to keep... It, it puts you more into a dynamic relationship. So, so both are true. Both are true. Sometimes we do really good things thinking that they're bad. And sometimes we do really bad things thinking that they're really good. And so we pay attention to the consequences to kind of learn. You know? And it's dynamic, even, in ter- even temporally. So with somebody you know really well, sometimes one way of relating to them is really good. You know, you might know somebody uh, who's going through a hard time, and there's a certain way you relate to them. And then after seven years of them going through the same hard time, one day you're like, I'm not taking you out for lunch. You've got to get your shit together. Before we spend more time together, it's, it's enough. I, I can't hear it anymore. And then you wait and see what happens. And then maybe next week you'll be like, let's have lunch again together. I see that you have another seven years. Are you at the table next to me? So, let's finish chanting. Next week, we're going to try and do two parables in one week. Um, We'll do medicinal herbs and the phantom city, if you want to read ahead.